0: Will you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3? I'd like to look at verse 16 this morning. I was contemplating what to preach on the day after Christmas. It's still kind of Christmas, but it's not quite Christmas. But I think this is a very appropriate passage that came to, came to my mind. and So I would like to preach to you this morning about the mystery of the gospel. And all of that, of course, is a reality for us because of what Christ has done. Before I read the text, perhaps I can prepare your heart and your mind for what will follow. To be sure, we live in a very dark age and the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only beacon of hope Available to fallen man in this dark world. Jesus, you will recall, said that I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness but will have the light of life. Most people today walk in darkness. In fact, they prefer darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And until Jesus returns we know that Satan is the god of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of god as paul tells us in second corinthians 4 but thankfully god in his infinite mercy has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And Christmas is a wonderful opportunity to proclaim these magnificent truths. These magnificent truths concerning the unsearchable riches of Christ. Especially to proclaim these things to a culture that is frolicking in a fool's paradise, which sadly is a prelude to hell. A prime example of that that I saw this last week in the Illinois Capitol Rotunda, they have featured an installation that showcases the satanic temple's quote deity, Baphomet. Sometimes he's called Baphomet. A winged goat creature with the head of a devil. And in that rotunda where I have been, this winged goat creature with the head of a devil is displayed as a babe swaddled in a manger. Maybe some of you have seen that. Baphomet is a hideous, half-human, half-animal, both male and female, supposedly depicting both good and evil, an ancient idol. It supposedly symbolizes binary elements representing the equilibrium of opposites. And it's not surprising that Satan would display this hideous monster to complement his hideous deceptions concerning the gender binary deceptions that we have in our day. The Satanic Temple tweeted this, TST invites you to our Sol Invictus tradition of displaying baby Baphomet at the Capitol building in Springfield, Illinois. Come spread the message of harmony and unity. By the way, Sol Invictus was the ancient sun god of the solar cult of the ancient Roman Empire. But dear friends, in truth, theirs is not a message of harmony and unity. It is a message of deception that is blinding men and women to the gospel and delivering them inexorably to the torments of an eternal hell. It's heartbreaking to even think about this. And of course, this is indicative of the satanic ideologies of liberalism that we see being forced upon us from every angle. So this Christmas, to battle the darkness, we will shine the light brightly. Amen? We will speak of Christ and him crucified, not of the Antichrist. And to that end, I wish to draw your attention to this passage of Scripture that speaks of the mystery of the gospel, and I might say that this is a passage that would seldom be considered perhaps at this season of the year. But it not only speaks of the incarnation of Christ, as you will see, but it also provides perhaps the most comprehensive summary of gospel truths in all of Scripture. This is a, a condensed and highly concentrate, concentrated um, passage of truth. It would be good for you all to put it to memory. It's a testimony that is short, it is concise, but it is a profound and powerful statement of gospel truths. In fact, it is believed that because of its literary construction, it is thought to be a hymn that was sung by our ancient brethren. The little Calvary Bible churches that were scattered all over the world at that time. So let me read it, 1st Timothy 3.16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Here we have, dear friends, six Stanzas containing the essential truths of the Christian faith. Six lines delineating the essence, frankly, of the entire New Testament. Six phrases that just pulsate with emotion regarding the great mystery of godliness. Helping us understand why men and women, when they wholeheartedly embrace the gospel, are so radically changed by it why they are animated in their hearts to worship him and serve him. These are six astounding truths that, frankly, Satan seeks to distort and seeks to deny. Six glorious facts that his diabolical world system attempts to silence. Now, let me give you a little context here before we dig into this text and apply it to our lives. Paul has just instructed Timothy concerning the qualifications of elders and deacons in the church. Then in verse 15, he says, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Beloved, never forget this. That's what the church is. Notice it is the household of God. It is the church of the living God. Therefore, we must know how we ought to conduct ourselves in this household, how to act accordingly and appropriately in this spiritual family, realizing that that God is our Father and we as believers are brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's a bit of the context. And obviously, he wants us to understand that the church is the possession of Indeed, the dwelling place of the living God, which he has established. It is a place that is, frankly, the embodiment of his truth through the revelation of Jesus Christ. The church is not a religious country club. It is not a religious theater for entertainment. It is not a political organization to somehow promote social or political agendas. It is not a social welfare agency to provide education and food and clothing, clothe the poor, even though there will be times where we will help with that. It is certainly not a center for prosperity and success and physical healing. It is the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. It is an assembly. It is a family, you might say, of people in which God must dwell with honor and with dignity and holiness. A habitation like the Holy of Holies in the ancient tabernacle and the temple where the glory of his presence and, and the power of his holiness must never be diminished by the character and the conduct of his children who live in that house. It's a place where the majesty Of Christ is put on display where the truth of his word is proclaimed and protected and we are therefore to be a spiritual house set on a hill so that others can behold the transforming saving power of the gospel a spiritual structure whose foundation is the divinely inspired inerrant infallible authoritative, all-sufficient word of the living God. And therefore, by implication, when we properly understand these things, we will see how we are to conduct ourselves in God's household, the church. And when we humbly dwell under the roof of this holy edifice, not this building, but, but who we are as a people in the body of Christ, then this wisdom will influence us And the result will be godliness, people who practice the truth in life. So this brings us to our text here in verse 16. And here the Holy Spirit summarizes the essential truths we are to believe, that we are to proclaim, that we are to protect. And he does so in six small but very balanced sentences each of them uh, carefully stated in the original language in poetic form. Uh, He does this in order for there to be no doubt about the essentials of the truth, of our faith. And it appears that this particular text was written to be the lyrics of a hymn. Uh, In fact, it's written in such a way as to help us memorize it, to be able to really sing it, designed to help us remember its substance and therefore the essentials of our faith. Now you must bear in mind that in ancient uh, oriental poetry, um, they weren't concerned with meter and rhyme as we are in our poetry, but rather they focused on various thought patterns of parallel comparisons and or contrasts, and that's what we see here. These things would be used to somehow emphasize essential truths concerning a subject. And here, for example, we see, first of all, the uniformity of six verbs that are used. I want to be a little technical here for a moment, but it's exciting when you see what the Holy Spirit has done. And I don't want to just gloss over it because I want to teach you so that you can understand these things and live them out. First of all, there's the uniformity of six verbs, all third person singular past tense verbs, all of them referencing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Notice he says, he who was revealed, vindicated, beheld, proclaimed, believed, and taken up. And frankly, even in the original language, it has an obvious rhythm to it. In fact, as I read it in the original language, it even has a bit of a rhyme to it. But you will also see that in this text, three marvelous parallels of comparison and contrast also exist. First, between the Christ being manifested in the flesh in line one and vindicated by the spirit in line two. And Secondly, we see another parallel between the sight of the angels in line three and the hearing of the nations in line four. And thirdly, we see where Christ in his humiliation is believed on in the world in line five. But he is also glorified in his ascension back into glory in line six. A comparison there between earth and heaven. And we can also see three pairs of truth revealed to us in this text. We can see that the first and the last lines contrast Christ's descent to earth in line one and his ascent into heaven in line six. And the second and the fifth lines exalt the Holy Spirit's affirmation of the Lord Jesus' deity. And in line two we see that he was vindicated in the Spirit but we also see the Spirit's work of regeneration in line five where he is believed on in the world. Also in lines three and four we see how the Spirit of God underscores the universal proclamation of God's plan of redemption, which is seen by angels in line three, but it's also proclaimed among the nations in line four. And of course, none of the parallels found in these stances are accidental. All of them are inspired by God himself. And for this reason, we should examine them very, very carefully and reverently and expectantly. So let's do that. Let's first of all look at the introduction that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, gives us concerning these six essential elements of our faith. Notice verse 16. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. This, of course, parallels the phrase Paul used in verse 9, where he speaks of the mystery of faith, which is a reference to the mystery of our salvation purchased by the godly one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the merits of his life and his life alone and sacrificial death provides all the means by which we can be saved and also become godly. And of course, these were truths that were not fully disclosed in the Old Testament. This mystery of godliness is defined in the following doctrines and produce godliness in those who believe. In fact, we could put it this way. We are made godly by these truths. When they are fully embraced, they will animate our heart to worship and serve and obey and manifest Christ. You show me a person who claims to be a Christian? But when you look at that man or woman's life, you see nothing that resembles Christ. You show me that person, and I will show you, on the basis of Scripture, a hypocrite. Second Timothy 3, beginning at verse 2. These will be men who will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revelers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And catch this, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Oh, dear Christian, hear this. Great is the mystery of godliness. And godliness flows from the fountain of these gospel truths. In fact, Paul says later on in 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. The 17th century Puritan clergyman Thomas Manton said this, the gospel is a mystery So called by the Apostle, 1 Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery of godliness. He goes on to say, nature affords no help here. Theology is natural, but not Christology. Nature believes there is a God, but not that there is a Christ. The sun and moon preach up a God, their sound is gone out into all lands, and proclaim everywhere that there is an infinite and eternal power, and conscience preacheth up a judge. But all these natural preachers are dumb and silent concerning Christ, not a word concerning a Savior and a mediator. It could not enter into the thought of an angel to pitch upon such a remedy if God had not revealed it to them by the church. Ephesians 3.10, To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Now, will you also notice this profound mystery is embraced by, quote, common confession. In other words, by a unanimous belief among all who have placed their faith in Christ. These are the truths that have saved us. These are the truths that have transformed us. These are the truths that have caused us to pass from death to life. And anyone who disputes these truths or denies these truths... Is not part of the church. Now it is important for us to understand more about this word mystery. The term refers to revelation of something that was previously hidden or unknown. And there are seven mysteries mentioned in the New Testament and each one of them have profound implications on every believer and, and each one of them are, are truly an encouragement to our heart and help us understand God's plan of redemption. In fact, to quote another great Puritan of the 17th century, Matthew Henry, he said this, quote, Christianity is a mystery, a mystery that could not have been found out by reason or the light of nature and which cannot be comprehended by reason because it is above reason, though not contrary thereto. It is a mystery, not of philosophy or speculation, but of godliness designed to promote godliness, and herein it exceeds all the mysteries of the Gentiles. It is also a revealed mystery, not shut up and sealed, and it does not cease to be a mystery, because now in part revealed. End quote. Indeed, dear friends, now we see in a mirror darkly, dimly, according to 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. But then one day, face to face, Now, Paul says, I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I have also been fully known. Even though God's word completed is complete now and the illumination of the spirit is therefore revealed to us, we are still incapable of seeing all that God is and all that God does. But a day is coming, dear friends, when we will enter into his presence, when we will see him face to face, and we will understand these things. We will no longer know in part, but then we shall know fully, just as we have also been fully known. So, what are these seven mysteries mentioned in the New Testament? these revealed truths previously hidden and unknown in the old testament well first of all there is the mystery of the kingdom of god we read about this for example in mark 11. it's also called the kingdom of heaven about which jesus taught to his disciples especially in his parables as you would see in like matthew 13 greatly expanding upon the limited and incomplete glimpses of of the kingdom of God revealed in the Old Testament. There, if we dig into it, we see that this refers to uh, the sphere of God's dominion over those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he rules in a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of believers, but also Scripture teaches of a future physical earthly kingdom that God will establish when the Lord returns as King of Kings. And during this church age, the Son of Man is sowing seed. He is raising up a spiritual nucleus for this future earthly kingdom for which we are commanded therefore to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But until then, God is permitting a paramel- parallel, parallel, uh, shall we say, development of evil in this world that is being ruled by Satan, but eventually when he comes again at his second coming, God will reap a harvest and he will separate the good from the evil and and so forth. And at that time he will establish his millennial kingdom upon the earth, which will be the consummating bridge between the between human history and the eternal state. The second mystery is linked to the first, namely the mystery of the body of Christ, where both Jews and Gentiles are united together. We see this in in Ephesians three. In fact, there verse three and following, he says he speaks of Gentiles who are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then thirdly, there is the mystery of this this intimate and, and permanent union between Christ and his church as reflected in the sacred bond of marriage, Ephesians 5. It's also called the mystery of the gospel in Ephesians 6 and verse 19. And the mystery of Christ in dwelling believers, Colossians 1, 26 and 27, where we read, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then there is number four, the mystery of the partial hardening of God's covenant people Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Romans 11, 25 and 26. And then there is the mystery of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 7. Because of Satan, the spirit of lawlessness is currently alive in the world today. We see it all around us. But what we see today frankly will pale into utter insignificance compared to the pre-kingdom judgments that will occur upon the earth just prior to our Lord's return, an unprecedented explosion of opposition toward the one true God and all who belong to him. And certainly we see that kind of of militant unbelief escalating today and certainly being advanced in in the... and the evil ideologies that are being forced upon us especially by the neo-Marxists and the Democratic Party and we see it in other places all around the world and then sixthly there is the mystery of the rapture of the church in 1st Corinthians 15 verses 51 and 52 you might remember that the nature and the purpose of of the of the tribulation Daniel's 70th week is a focus on Israel, to bring her to belief and to judge the unbelieving world, and therefore I believe the church will be excluded from that time. Moreover, the church has promised deliverance from this time of wrath, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and 5.9, Revelation 3.10. The term rapture is, is not found in the Greek New Testament. It is a, a Latin translation of the Greek word translated harpazo, which means caught up. We read about this in 1 Thessalonians four seventeen. It means to be snatched away. This is a great mystery. It was first mentioned in John 14, 1 through 3, where Jesus speaks about how he is going to go away. He's going to come again to receive you unto himself. That where I am, he says, there you may be also. And it's explained in much greater detail in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. And then seventh, there's the mystery of godliness that we have here in 1 Timothy 3.16, which parallels the mystery of faith in verse 9. Now, please understand, godliness here not only refers to the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to every believer which produces godliness, but it can also be understood as a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the perfect embodiment of God-likeness. And I must add, to be sure, all scripture we know is inspired by God, and to that end, the entire biblical record contains the wisdom that of God and all of these great mysteries that were once hidden, truths that could have never been conceived by man. This is why we read in 1 Corinthians 2 beginning in verse 6 Yet we do not or yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature Paul says a wisdom however not of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away but we speak God's wisdom here it is in a mystery The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them. Through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Beloved, there is never a time when I stand in this pulpit to exposit these great texts that I am not struck with a sense of awe that not only have we been given these magnificent truths, not only have they been revealed to us, but I have a chance to preach them to you and you to hear them and respond to them and all of us to grow because of them. It's a weighty responsibility for every preacher, every Sunday school teacher, every parent to rightly divide the word of truth to preach the word, regardless of the quality of response it might elicit. And you must remember, you can either be faithful or you can be popular, but you cannot be both. You must choose which one. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2 says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of what? The mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. And here the term mystery is used in its broadest sense to refer to the divine truths of the New Testament entrusted to God-ordained messengers of the gospel. And we now have the full disclosure of these hidden truths. They're all found in the Word because the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's look closely at this common confession, this unanimous belief among those who have been saved and radically transformed by grace through faith in Christ. Notice the first mystery of godliness is founded upon he who was revealed in the flesh. Obviously, this is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the fact that he came is not a mystery. That's an indisputable truth. I mean, we we can see that historically, and it's the source of eternal rejoicing amongst the saints. But the fact that the self-existent, pre-existent, uncreated creator of the universe, who is spirit, And who dwells in unapproachable light took on human flesh. There's the mystery, the inscrutable mystery. And of course, this was all pictured in the Old Testament laws and types and symbols and rituals and sacrifices and prophecies in the Old Testament. I mean, how else could we have possibly seen God? Who dwells in unapproachable light, as an eternal spirit? Spirit, had he not taken on human flesh? How else could we have seen that? With his inimitable grasp of language and divine truth, the 19th-century English preacher Charles Spurgeon described it this way: "Quote." Not all the glory of the sky and of the sea, nor the wonders of creation or providence, can set forth the deity as does the Son of Mary, who from the manger went to the cross, and from the cross to the tomb, and from the tomb to his eternal throne. Behold ye now the Lamb of God, for God is manifest in him. People of God, look ye nowhere else for God. You see folks, this is the very foundation of our faith. This is the wellspring of our salvation. This is what Christmas should be about, the miracle of Christ's condescension from glory to take on human flesh. No mere mortal conceived in sin could possibly appease the just wrath of God. So God had to furnish for himself and for us a sinless substitute to be the perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of those he chose to save in eternity past. According to Hebrews 10, we read that in eternity past, the father ordained to prepare a human body for the son, a body that would never be tainted by sin, not have a sin nature. One that could, therefore, be the perfect sacrifice to satisfy his holy justice. This was the will of the Father. Jesus came to do the will of his Father, knowing perfectly well that he was taking upon himself, according to Philippians 2.7, the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we see more of this in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. He has been made, the writer tells us, for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God, him Might be that he might taste death for everyone. So he didn't just die, but he died for us specifically. So, folks, it's astounding. Think about this the babe in the manger had to be conceived by the Spirit of God and yet born of a virgin in order for him to be both the Son of Man and the Son of God. The son of a virgin according to the flesh, yet Emmanuel, God with us according to the Spirit. Think of it this way. In creation, man was made in God's image. But in the incarnation, God was made in man's image. Jesus had to take upon himself the nature of a man in order to be punished for our sin, yet he had to be God to endure the sufferings of the elect. Oh, child of God, ponder these great truths. He was revealed in the flesh. Speaking of the great work of a theanthropon, a God-man. And because he lived and died as a man, he can identify with all of our temptations. Isn't that great to know? Identify with our pain, our adversities, our sorrows, our broken hearts. And as a result, according to Hebrews 4, verse 15, we do not have a priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And what comfort, beloved, we have, knowing the one who was revealed in the flesh can identify with our sorrows. That which man could never see and never understand became that which we could see, which we could touch, which we could hear and emulate. So beloved, this is one of the most foundational truths of the mystery of godliness but secondly we read that Christ was vindicated in the spirit my what does that mean vindicated in the spirit vindicated means to justify or to declare righteous and here spirit could be a reference to the Holy Spirit it could be capitalized you don't see that in the original language whether they don't capitalize letters like that or or um, names like that, or it could refer to the righteous spirit or the spiritual nature of Jesus, and frankly, both are correct. Let me explain why to be sure, the spiritual nature of Christ vindicated him in that he was, according to hebrews seven twenty six holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, so he was declared righteous with respect to his spiritual nature, which was necessary for him to be, to, to be as such, to be a sinless, perfect sacrifice. Second Corinthians five twenty one. he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So because of his spiritual nature, he could speak and it was done miracle after miracle Declared his righteousness. But it is also correct to say that the Holy Spirit, who raised him from the dead, thus proving his righteousness, vindicated him as well. Think of Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. Jesus Christ, it says, was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness. And even now, having ascended back into heaven and seated at the right hand of the God right hand of God the Spirit of God continues to vindicate the Son by empowering his gospel to go forth through the ministry of his body the church of which we are all a part the Spirit of God dwells within us dwells within the church well, in light of all of this, notice the third stanza of the mystery of godliness. Beheld by angels. Beheld means literally to see, to be attendant to. Now remember, despite the magnificent glory of angels, these, these creatures that God has made, do you realize that they were unable to look upon God without being consumed by his glory. do You ever think about that? Remember according to Isaiah 6, the seraphim that hover around his throne cover their face with two of their six wings. Amazing thought. But then when the son of God came, when he took upon himself human flesh they could see a small glimpse of the glory of God as never before. To see a glimpse of the one they served and worshiped. These these beings for the first time see him being born and being placed in a manger wrapped in cloths. What an inconceivable mystery. It must have been amazing for them to see this kind of divine humility and later on they would minister to him in the wilderness in that time when Jesus was tempted by Satan they would behold his perfect life they would see his selfless love they would see his his tears of compassion his power over his creation his zeal for his father's house his power even over satan and his minions these same angels would then eventually tend to him in the garden of gethsemane and then they would watch with utter amazement as he hung upon the cross they would be there to roll away the stone at his tomb not to let jesus out but to let us in then announce to the women he has risen. You know, even the fallen angels beheld his glory. First Peter 3 speaks of this. We know that while his body was dead, Jesus' living and divine spirit made a visit to the demons that are bound in a special place of torment, a special prison called the abyss, where some demons are there because of some exceptionally heinous acts of wit- wickedness that they have committed. And there he announced his triumph over Satan, sin, and death. Colossians 2.15 says that on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And of course, the holy angels were also there at our Lord's ascension back into heaven. And throughout our Lord's time on earth, these angels beheld him, attending to his needs as the Father willed. And I marvel to think that they are even here and we can't see them. They attend to us. They minister to us. The angelic involvement in Jesus' life and ministry gave further validation, therefore, that he was indeed the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel. Ah, but the mystery of godliness doesn't stop here. The one who was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, and beheld by angels, is also proclaimed among the nations. And this is certainly a mystery of grace to me as a Gentile. I think most of us are Gentiles. Though God came first to the Jew, he has also grafted the wild olive branch into of the Gentiles, into the root of covenant blessing giving, given originally to Abraham. How thankful I am for that. Prior to the gospel being extended to the Gentile nations, the Jewish people thought that we were the lowest of the low. I mean, we were were dogs. We were scum. We would never be able to experience God's mercy and blessing. But then Christ was preached among the Gentiles, my ancestors and yours. And myriads have responded in repentant faith. Indeed, we have been commanded to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. To be his witnesses, according to Acts 1.8, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And to this day, the gospel message continues to go forth around the world. We have... Evidence from our websites that about 200 nations of the world have listened in to what comes from this pulpit and you all are a part of that. But notice the fifth stanza, believed on in the world. Not only proclaimed among the nations, but believed on in the world. You see, though the message of of sin and the cross will be utter folly to most, it has and will continue to save many. God has promised to build his church. He has saved people like you and like me. Beloved, never underestimate the power of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation, and therefore we should never be ashamed of the gospel. We should never compromise the gospel. We should never soften it to make it more palatable to people who might be offended by it. We should never tinker with the gospel seed so that somehow it will grow in any soil. We just preach it with all of its purity and power. We just unleash the gospel and watch it turn murderers into preachers. Watch it turn prostitutes into godly mothers. Watch it turn fornicators and dope fiends and drunkards, thieves, even crooked politicians into faithful servants of Christ. And at the end of Christ's earthly ministry, you realize there were only 120 believers who were there and met with him in the upper room within just a few weeks thousands were added to their number and within a few years the gospel had spread throughout the nations of the world oh the mystery of godliness and what a joy to know the power of the gospel and be transformed by it and to see it being unleashed even amongst our children to see our children come to saving faith in Christ and begin to walk with him and serve him. What a joy that is. To witness its power to save those who believe, according to Revelation 13, 6, from every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Well, the final stanza is not only another great mystery of godliness, but it is a preview of what will happen to us the phrase says taken up in glory you see because Jesus perfectly obeyed the will of his father and because his work on earth was finished and because he made purification for sins we read in Hebrews 1 3 he ascended back into glory and there he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high We read about this, of course, in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. There's a description of the scene. I hope you can see it in your mind's eye. There we read, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Oh, beloved, ponder these great truths every day of your life. Teach them to your children. Memorize these stanzas. Let them become part of your spiritual repertoire then preach them with all of your heart and live consistently with them and know this that even though in his first coming he came in humility he's coming again in glory despite what the world says he came the first time as a lamb that opened not his mouth but he will return again as the Lion of Judah and from his mouth scripture says comes a sharp sword So with it, he may smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread on the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the almighty. Beloved, do you believe this? This is what he has promised. He came the first time and only a few knees bowed. When he comes again, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He came the first time. He was wrapped in cloths laid in a manger but when he returns again we read in revelation that on his robe and on his thigh he will have a name written king of kings and lord of lords and there he will exchange his manger for a throne he came the first time in obscurity he was seen only by a few but When he comes again, we read that just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. He came the first time to seek and to save the lost, and he will come again with those that he has sought and saved to judge his enemies. He came the first time. There was no room in the end, but, beloved, when our Lord returns again, the universe will not be able to contain his glory. Oh, how I long to see him face to face. How I long for the glory of the Lord to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray together. Father, when we Reflect upon the magnificent truths of your word that reveal to us the glory of your plan of redemption. And how we as sinners, debtors to your grace, are a part of it. Again, we are overwhelmed with a sense of awe. The weight of it crushes us to the point where we just wanna fall on our face before you and say thank you for your saving grace. And oh, how we long to see your glory. But we know that you have placed us here in order to manifest your glory, that our lives might redound to your glory, that others might see the power of Christ in us. So to that end, I pray that by the power of your spirit, You will enable us to have a passion for godliness, that we might be a holy people, that we might be dedicated to evangelism, that others might come to know you as we know you. And to that end, we pray even this day for the glory of Christ, who we long to see even so come quickly